welcome to season nine of the Art of Teaching podcast. My name's Matthew Green, and I'm so grateful that you've joined me today. Before we get started with our discussion, I would like to acknowledge the Darawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm recording. I respect and honour Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, past, present and future, and I acknowledge the stories, traditions and living cultures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples on this land. Welcome back. In Australia, we are about to begin another year in the classroom. Geez, don't the holidays fly. It seems like only a minute ago that we were talking about finishing the year well and tying up loose ends in 2022. I hope that you all had a refreshing holiday and that you're ready for a brilliant term one. As much as I've enjoyed the holidays, I'm really excited to get back into the classroom and begin to teach. Before we launch into the year ahead, I thought that I would share a recent conversation that I had with the brilliant Amy Green. And no, we're not related. Amy is a former teacher and school leader who is the founder of The Wellness Strategy. She works with individuals and workplaces to help them understand what well-being is, develop well-being literacy, and to co-design and create well-being strategies and interventions that work. This is a really important conversation to have at the beginning of the year, so that we all can have a meaningful conversation about well-being and how to look after ourselves. Her recent work, Teacher Wellbeing, was a great read and I'm so grateful that I got to talk with her. All of Amy's details are available below in the show notes. I hope that you enjoy this conversation that I had with the amazing Amy Green. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. Where are you phoning in from? Thanks for having me. I'm from Brisbane, not sunny Brisbane today, though. Just yeah. Brisbane. Yeah. You mentioned it was a bit rainy. It is. It is. Nice one. And quite possibly the most important uh, question for our conversation. Uh, what's your coffee order? Long black. Nice. How's the coffee scene up in Brizzy? Um, it has room for growth, I think. Does it? Yeah, okay. definitely. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, have hipsters made it up to Brisbane yet? Well, not quite. And I've only been here 18 months and I came from Canberra and the coffee scene in Canberra is quite good. So I came with high expectations of coffee. Okay, nice one. Um, Is there an item that's still on your bucket list that you haven't uh, ticked off yet? Many. Uh, One that I've been talking a little bit about lately that I'd like to do is go and hike the Inca Trail. That's something I'd love to do. Amazing. Uh, My wife and I did that a number of years ago. And it was by far the best thing we've ever done. That's awesome. I um, it, It's definitely up there and I think now we can travel again. I, I do want to go travelling. I lived overseas for a number of years, so I've done Europe and things, but be, being I think just being out in nature and seeing something that has history to it, yeah, that's Stunningly mind. beautiful. And is there a book that you have read, it could be recently, um, uh, that has made you reconsider a few things in your life? Just anything by Brene Brown, anything at all. Although I am currently reading The Tale of Pooh, like Pooh Bear through Taoism, which is actually hilarious. And I read a little bit each night and it just makes me think like maybe we should all carry a few Pooh Bear philosophies around with us and just keep it simple. Yeah, interesting. And is there something that that you have changed your mind about? It could be personally, it could be professionally. It's completely up to you how you want to define that. Uh, Heaps of things. I think my whole life is based on changing my mind and and that's part of growth and professional development. But I wrote a a newsletter blog yesterday around changing my concept of being organised. So I used to at this time, like example, I haven't even written in my 2023 diary or calendar yet and it's the 17th of January. It's My calendar's still sitting on top of the cupboard. I think my diary's in the drawer under here. I've written nothing in it. I use my Google, Google calendar for key things like this so I don't forget. But um, what I've changed is the idea of thinking that in order to, I don't know, be successful and high performing, you also have to be rigidly organized and scheduled. And oh. I think I, use, I I had that mindset for a number of years and I've learned it just created more stress and more resistance. So the thing I've changed is that actually, yeah, you've got to lock key things in so you don't forget life. 
stuff that happens, but also being flexible. There's just as much fun and joy and I think success that comes with that mindset too. Interesting. Um, do you think that is, are you, so you are naturally quite an organised and quite a structured person or is that something mm-hmm. which um, has uh, you've sort of picked up as part of being a teacher? I would say both. I'm naturally quite organised and systemised. Like my house is quite organised and systemised. Everything has a house. Everything has a home in the house. I rarely lose things. Just follow the system and you don't lose your car keys. It's pretty simple. But also I took that to the extreme in the teacher world and in the classroom and then also because I, because it, when you're teaching you're on all of the time and time can get wasted and I wanted to do so many things, if I didn't schedule it in, I didn't feel like my day was going to run in that certain order and so I o- would overschedule myself and then freak out if something didn't go to plan. It was yeah. not good. Yeah, interesting. Um, so take us back to your upbringing. What was it like and what are you most grateful for uh, from your parents? Well, I grew up in a really small country town called Kudamundra. So it's about two hours out of Canberra. Yeah, it's about six, 8,000 people or something. Really tiny. Not much happening, to be honest. And it, I have, I'm the oldest of four siblings. We grew up together. It was, uh, it was great. I'm really close to them. And then when I was about 17, I went, I went to university. I was quite young to go through school. And so I packed my bags and off I went. And that was really part of what my what my mum uh, my dad wasn't around so what my mum instilled me around being able to just do anything you want uh so I was the first one to in my family to go to university uh to to kind of pursue a professional career uh in that sense and that I guess that essence of you can go and do whatever you want but you've also got to do the work behind it was part of what was instilled in us growing up uh from you know I, I write and talk about this often that that having to always be busy was one thing that was said often in our household. And I've had, that's something I've had to unlearn and relearn as well. So there are lessons I think from my childhood that I spend a lot of time now either sharing my experience of and working through or still trying to tackle because it creates so much of who we are and how we operate. I'm grateful for all of them. It's just that some serve me and some don't right now. Uh, but it was it was beautiful to grow up in a small country town and have that closeness and be able to, to walk to school or walk down the street or, you know, just know you're safe and everyone knows everyone. And we'll definitely get on to your, um, uh, your current work. I just wanted to touch on... Um you mentioned how you had this notion of always wanting to be busy or always feeling like you should be busy in your household. My family was exactly the same. If you weren't moving, you were in trouble or you were yeah. productive. But um, do you think that a lot of your identity kind of came from that? That's kind of that that sort of forward momentum and continuously ticking off goals and, and doing things and keeping yourself busy. And was that a, a positive thing or, or something which you kind of found a little bit challenging? A hundred percent. It was part of my identity and still is in some way. I just am better. No, (laughs) no. I think I took it to a perhaps unhealthy place though. So I really stretched it. And it was part of just thinking that's what you should do. You should go to school. You should go to university. You should get a job. You should, you know, make money and buy a house and like tick off that list of what success looks like and so that forced me into a space of always being busy and always having something to do and finding something to do in our house it was if you're bored then you got given a chore to do or you find something to do because only unsuccessful people do nothing those types of things so so I adopted just this way of living and being continually finding something to do which the unhealthy side of it meant I couldn't rest. I couldn't slow down. It definitely contributed to the chronic stress that I experienced and high cortisol and and not being able to stop. And then I think I got to a point where also like I'd done all of the things and I was like, well, what do I do now? I don't really want to be a principal at 28. So what do I do with my life? Just, yeah. Yeah, that that that's really interesting. And I'm really interest in some of those drivers and obviously um uh, it'd be great to talk in a moment about your uh, amazing book that you've written and also your work now um but was there what were you like at school was there a teacher that had a significant impact in your life I was not the best student (laughs) um in primary school you know I was I wanted to please and do all of the right things but once I hit high school I really started questioning everything I was the student that was like why are we learning this and when is this relevant and when am I going to use it in the real world and 
I had a maths teacher uh, towards my last few years in high school and we didn't see eye to eye. And once I had decided I'd learned everything I needed, I just didn't go to class. I'd just go to the art room and hang out and I'd be like, I'll turn up and do the test, but that's it. And I, I wasn't, I wasn't at all this a straight A compliance student, I was definitely already testing and pushing the boundaries of, do I have to do this? Or are you just telling me to do it? And so like, do I need to be compliant? How far can I stretch it? What do I actually need in life to get by on whatever it is I'm trying to do? And I figured out how to do that. Not necessarily the right way or the best way, or um, perhaps even the most cooperative way, but I made it through somehow. (laughs) So I mean, why go back to school then if your experience wasn't particularly positive? Why pursue a career in education? It's not that my experience wasn't positive. I think I just was very determined to do things in a way that worked for me and I wasn't really bothered about whether I got in trouble for that and I always... I suppose it wasn't negative. I was always prepared to stand my ground and say, well, actually I'm doing this and here's my reason why. I was very confident even at 17 to make bold decisions and stand stand in that space. But I didn't start my university path in teaching. I actually went to do a, a degree in design for arts and television, so art and TV, theatre, lighting, costume, that kind of stuff. And actually relating to what we talked about before about the need for control and knowing what's coming, that they in the early days of that university course, they talked to you about stability and career and what it looks like because it's very inconsistent. You could be working on this show and then that changes and then you might go somewhere else. And and that freaked me out a little bit. I was like, oh, I don't know if I can cope with that, not having a stable job and teaching was my second uh, calling, but I I did not get the university scores to be able to get into that degree, but I just decided I was going to switch to teaching. So I walked into the education office and asked if I could change and they pretty much said yes. And that's how I ended up there. If I was to sit down and ask you uh, what you did, can you please uh, outline that? Yeah, I get asked this often and I've really had to work on what I say because I kind of go, oh, well, I'm a teacher, but actually I'm not a teacher anymore. And so that's a huge shift in how I answer that question. So right now what I do is I work with teachers to help them just make life easier and better and happier. That's essentially what it is. And I know it sounds a bit waffly and fluffy, but we have so many teachers who are feeling like they're burnout or they're overwhelmed or stress is increasing and demands are increasing. And so what I do is I help them understand what their well-being is in both a personal and professional sense in an everyday and workplace environment. And I do that either through individually working with teachers, whether that's one-on-one or through some online programs I run, or going into schools and working with schools on well-being strategies and really understanding what well-being is, having that consistent and shared definition, helping them see it's far more than just morning teas or chocolate cake or cancelled meetings and getting to the crux of knowing that when we're talking about supporting well-being, we're actually looking at how we operate, whether it's personally or at a team level or a whole school level, and ensuring that the things we do need to support our well-being and our well-being also needs to support the work that we do. So I'm pretty passionate about teaching and learning, but then also well-being and being able to combine those two things together in the business I've created is really fulfilling. And I think the more we're able to talk about well-being in a way that allows teachers and educators to understand it's not just about making sure we've got a fruit bowl or a yoga class and they can see that it's meaningful and impactful to the work they do the bigger change we can create and I think that's really that's really exciting for now and where we're at I think that's so important and I I read your book um I actually read it last week and I read it in one setting go you it was I know I don't know if that's just because I'm a parent and you've just got to get stuff done um, but no, in all seriousness, I read it and I read it from cover to cover and it really spoke to me. And it was, it's so important, I think, to to have these discussions around well-being, um, especially for our educators. Um, and considering the amount of turmoil that we've just come out of with COVID-19, I, I'm, I feel so incredibly grateful that the topics that you talk about in your book um, are so prominent now in our discussion. And um before we kind of get into the nuts and bolts of that, I mean, what is well-being? Like, how do you define it? And is it something which is a a one-size-fits-all approach? Yeah, great question. And this is often what I throw back to people I work with. We all talk about well-being and we all say we want to fix it or improve it or it needs to be a priority, but what is it? And I'm so often meant with blank faces and people don't actually know, they can't define it, they can't articulate it or 
we we want to wrap it up in words like, well, it's about having work-life balance. It's about having compassionate leaders. It's about being respectful for my of my boundaries. And yes, it is all of those little things. But my favorite definition of well-being, because there isn't one singular definition, it's defined differently everywhere. My favorite definition comes from the World Health Organization. And they talk about when you have well-being that's functioning well, when it's flourishing, when everything is working for you, it's actually an element of mental health. And there are four key areas that they identify to let you know that your well-being is working and what they say essentially well-being is. So they say well-being is about knowing what your strengths are and working towards those. It's about being productive. It's about managing everyday stress. And it's about contributing to community and contributing beyond self. And so when I work with teachers and I go into schools and I say, well, actually, this is what well-being is. It's about knowing our strengths and utilizing them, being productive in the work that we do, managing everyday stress and contributing beyond our own classroom or beyond our own small team. That shifts a whole conversation that really changes the way people understand well-being and it allows people to go, well, well, hang on. Maybe it's not just about making sure I feel happy all the time or going to a yoga class or not doing stressful things. It's about how I manage those everyday aspects of life to ensure that not only is my well-being being supported, but that I'm able to do other things as well. I mean, there's so many points in that. It's almost a like a, a podcast episode in itself, just that response. And um, I I, I did want to ask, like, what like schools are incredibly busy places. I mean, you know, you're an experienced educator. We are, we all, we we measure so many different things, but for some reason, we don't have a a plan or a program or an agenda for as part of our school improvement plan for well being. I mean, what why? I mean, why not? If it's something which is so central and so important, um, where where kind of where have we gone wrong with it? Why why isn't it much more at the center of of what we should be doing at schools? I think the way we view teachers and educators has really shifted. I was reading something, I don't know, I must have, I saw it on some social media platform uh, a little while ago about teaching um, in the early 1900s and teachers were female and you weren't allowed to have a family and you weren't allowed to have a ch- have children and you weren't allowed to have a husband. And so early on teachers were es- essentially that is all you did and who you were and you gave your, you gave your life up essentially to be a teacher. And in some ways, we've still carried on parts of that thinking, that tradition and that idea that we're here to serve the community. And we absolutely are. It just looks different now that it's part of a career and a profession and it's not something that we give our whole life up for. And I think when those things have shifted and it's been a really long journey, it's happened slowly and we don't identify or talk about that. Uh, And in fact, it kind of, that idea wasn't front of my mind even when I was writing the book it's only that I stumbled upon this little spiel the other week and I thought that's really interesting like I wonder how that has influenced where teachers are now and what schools are looking at because schools are essentially there to serve students and so communities and families know that they can have their students in a safe space to learn and that's been the center and core business of schools forever and I know when I was a school leader and a teacher I used to talk a lot about well what's our core business and what do our students need And that was always the driver behind decision-making, behind budgets, behind strategic plans. And now all of a sudden we're seeing a shift. We're going, well, hang on. If we really want the best for our students, we have to look after the people that stand in front of them. We have to look after our teachers. And so we're in a transition period of understanding that, yes, it is about our students, but unless we have the right people in front of them who are well, who feel cared for, who feel like they're valued and mattered and matter, it's, it's, not really going to change the way we teach, the way we interact with our students or the learning that they receive because we have to look after our teachers first and understanding that they're not just teachers, they're people and they're dealing with a whole lot of pressure and expectation and everything else we see in the media that comes to it. And so now we have schools starting to question and wonder what that looks like. So I don't I don't think it's a case of necessarily saying we've done it wrong um, as such, but more these are some things perhaps we've missed and now it's time to press pause and say, well, if we really value our educators, then we have to make teacher wellbeing the centre. The other thing that gets in the way is, and if you've been a school leader, you'll know around uh, budgeting, boards, priorities, how we kind of have to justify everything we do. And usually those key indicators link back to students, student performance, student engagement, student wellbeing and student outcomes. And so that's not teachers. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And I know even myself in this space, trying to get courses accredited for teacher wellbeing, I can't get them through because they're not. It, there's nothing in it about students. There's nothing in it about learning and teaching. There's nothing in it that the ATL standards suggest. But it is such important work, and that's another hard piece for schools to navigate. Well, how do we do this and support our teachers and give them what they need, but also look after our students as well? It's almost like I think we need to press pause for a little while and just look after our teachers because our kids will be fine for a bit. Our teachers are doing a great job. They know what to do. So let's let them do their piece while we really take care of them. It, it, it's so interesting. And I think asking that sort of key question about what is the purpose of schools and and um, and making sure that the focus is not just on the children because you kind of have to put your own oxygen mask on first to make it's sure you that. for your students. And um, it, it's also it's really difficult, I think, to measure well-being because it's so subjective. I mean, we're, I, I think in schools we're used to looking at concrete numbers and, and improvement bounds and so on and so forth. And it almost feels, and it shouldn't be, but it almost feels selfish to think about ourselves as educators and how to look after ourselves. And um, is is that is that a challenge that you've come across with teachers? Are we Do we find it difficult to put ourselves first? Yeah, all the time. It's really common. It's And we're in a profession of service, of caring for others and thinking for others all the time. I mean, we can't walk through the supermarket without going, oh, that'd be fun in my classroom. It's just in us. It's who we are. And so being able to take a step back and go, I'm just going to go shopping and not think about my classroom is really hard. But there are also bigger examples of that in even even now and it's that odd mid-January where some schools are back and some aren't and that transition phase back into the classroom and it's do I start working, do I not, when do I go in and set up my classroom when I don't, is this my holidays, is it not? Just those little things on, well, how do we know when to pause and stop and how do we do it without feeling guilty and how do we really know we're doing the best we can? I mean, we all know that and all and I would argue that every teacher is doing the best they can with what they've got. Is there always room for improvement and growth and things we could be doing differently? Probably. But do we always need to do that? No, we don't. Sometimes we just need to stop and go, my classroom's working really well. My students are happy. They're safe. The learning's going great. So right now I can just let things run and take a step back and ask myself, what do I need? And there doesn't have to be guilt attached to that. It should, in fact, be part of what we do all of the time. But we have this mindset of, well, I'll just wait till the end of the week. I'll just wait till the end of the term. I'll wait till the end of the year. And that's why we're seeing so much burnout. Yeah. Look, I mean, it's so important. I mean, even as we speak now, my little ones in the other room, uh, most, most people probably will have heard us screaming in the last question that I asked you. And it's it's difficult. I think there is this constant um, a juggle that I find at least working in schools is that you never quite get it right. Sometimes I'm a great classroom teacher. Other times I'm not a great classroom. I'm not a great leader. Other times I'm a great leader. And then I drop the ball as a classroom teacher. And then I'm struggling as a dad. And then I'm supposed to be doing a 10,000 steps a day. And there's just, there's so much going on. And, and um, what's at stake if we, if, if we don't address these issues around teacher wellbeing? Um, because it just, it can quite easily become just another thing that we've got to do in schools. But what's, what's truly at stake if we don't take the time to, to ask some of these mm. questions? Well, I think the first thing that comes to mind is we won't have any teachers left. <laughs> We're going to different jobs and different professions and, and places where wellbeing and culture and people are not I don't I'm going to say valued more and it's not that I don't think teachers are valued I just think we're we're trying to figure out how we do that especially in an environment where we can't have flexible working arrangements necessarily or where we can't go you know what there's no work today we're all going to go down to the park and have a massive lunch and hang out and play frisbee my brother's just finished university and his company did that recently and I was like oh my goodness imagine if we did that sorry we're not having school today we're just going to go down to the park and have pizza for lunch and play frisbee for the afternoon there are things that aren't available to us to be able to look after teacher well-being in a way that other working places can can do and so I think we have to we have to figure out how are we going to do this well in our environment, within our systems, within our structures, within the way our schools operate, or we're not going to have teachers because there are other things that will call them out, other jobs, other professions, or we'll, we know we're losing 50% within the first five years. We know that the, the longevity of teachers is getting shorter and shorter and it's common for them to go and and find other places to work. But I think the other thing that is at stake here is school culture. It's how schools operate. It's the positive relationships among staff. It's the effectiveness of teams. It's how students learn. We talk about teacher wellbeing and student learning like they're different things, but they're actually the same. 
mm. as is student wellbeing. If we really want learning to improve, if we want to do school differently, if we want students to have more inclusive environments to be a part of, if we want teachers to feel like they're more, they have more autonomy in their classrooms and that they can better serve their students, then we have to look after their well-being as well. Otherwise, we have these teachers who are on autopilot, who are going through the motions and who feel like they're really struggling but care so much that they actually don't know how to stop. They don't know what help is. They don't know where to go. And so then we have people really struggling in front of our students. So we're yeah. either not going to have anyone or we're just going to have teachers who are really struggling and then that's not the best for our students either. Yeah, absolutely. Um. Amy, I'm just curious, um, would you be able to take me back to a, a challenging time that you had as a teacher and how you sort of found your way through that? Yeah, many. I can think of many. Of so many. Uh, so <laughs> many, like a day, a week. Um, oh, I remember being an, like an early career teacher. I taught in London for three years. So I taught, finished university, taught in Australia for three and a half, and then uh, went over to London for three years and it was it was hard work over there but a very different way of teaching and schools were I think they think they operated differently and the culture was different and when I came back from London to Australia I was like yeah let's get in and do this and we've got to do all of these things because I was I went through Ofsted and I was used to being in a school where you had to hand your books in every fortnight and they would get scrutinized against your lesson plans and uh, you would get feedback all the time and I mean I loved that I thrived in that environment because I was a systems person and I was organized I was like yeah I can do this and when I came back I I had that same expectation and I think you know London is fast and so I was operating fast Australia's not that Australia's pretty chill we're much slower (laughs) and so I found myself just wanting to go, go, go. And I did this for years. Like I kept that same pace and that same lifestyle of rushing. I was just rushing all of the time. And after a number of years, it caught up with me. And I got to a point where I just, I remember going into my doctor's office and saying, I'm fine. I'm just really tired. And so I don't think I can go to work. And this was the first this was the first inkling that maybe something wasn't right. And I had this wonderful doctor and they wrote, they listened to me and they understood and they said, yeah, you're a teacher. Things are busy. I also had a really challenging class at the time uh, with some behavior needs in there that were really complex. And that was testing for me as well. And I was, and I was tired, but I also was trying to do a thousand things. And so this wonderful doctor wrote on the prescription pad and he got it out and he said, these are the things you're going to do. You're going to meditate. I didn't meditate at this point in time. I was like, I can't even sit still for three minutes. I don't know how I'm doing that. You're going to learn to meditate. Are you going to spend more time outdoors? You're going to have a day a week where you plan nothing, like plan nothing. I mean, I, I, I was planned seven days a week, every waking hour, do nothing on a Sunday, have zero plans, um, do more reading and go to the beach. He's like, I want you to get in your car and drive. So I was in Canberra. So he said, I want you to drive two hours and go to the beach. And that was it. That was the first kind of insight into wow, I don't do any of these things. I couldn't do any of these things that are essentially foundations for my well-being. I mean, I ate, ate healthy, but also was the unhealthy side of you know, counting macros and calories. And I exercised daily, but too intensely for my body. And it really impacted my cortisol. And uh, I made sure I got my eight hours sleep every night and I was in bed at n- nine o'clock and up at five and everything was scheduled. But I didn't know how to slow down. And so that was the first insight into is is high performance and success really this? Like, is this really what I want? Uh, and so I car- I think I, I, that was probably, I don't know, seven years ago or something, and I think I still have it. I think, I think I still have that piece of prescription pad paper somewhere because that was the moment where I was like, oh, maybe life is meant to be different. Wow. You should frame that prescription. That would be really Yeah, I definitely have it somewhere in here. Yeah. You you seem like quite a uh, obviously a, a, a driven person and someone who has an um, exceedingly high capacity. Um, but does that come with a with a downside as well? Like, did you ever think that you? I'm sure you read all of the stories and you 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 read about well being and meditation and exercise and all that stuff. But did you sort of think you were immune from that? Yeah, and then I thought I didn't need it. I was like, yeah. I don't need to meditate. I'm fine. What are you talking about? Look at all the things I've done, and I'm like. 27 and like you know I'd done all of the things so there it was the moment when I went into when I saw an integrative GP and my, and she said I think you've got chronic stress I was like no I don't I'm totally fine what are you talking about I'm just tired like I've had this before I just get really tired sometimes because I'm working too much and I'd like I'm okay though 
I thought, I think first of all, I thought it would it would just come and go mm. and I didn't really need to change anything. I probably just needed to sleep for five days and I'd be okay. And we do this as teachers. Well, I'll just wait till holidays and then I'll just sleep some more. I was talking to a teacher this morning and they said, oh, I haven't really had a, a um, an easy holiday and I've got to go back to work in a week. So I'm just going to hang into Easter and I'm just going to sleep all through Easter. It's <laughs> not really... That's not really going to support your well-being. That's not helpful. But we, it's like it's normal. And yeah. so I think I thought in some way I thought I was above it. I thought, oh, no, that's not for me. Like I've got this figured out. I know what I'm doing here. I can see all of the things that you should do to be high-performing and to be successful yeah. and to have life organised and in order and, like, don't tell me I'm not doing it. And that's been a massive shift. Yeah. And also, like, I, I think we feel like we, because a, a teaching is an act, we, yeah, we, we get right. out, we deliver a lesson regardless of if we've had a, a fight with our loved one or we've or, or whatever, we've spilled coffee on our whatever. Like yeah. and so we get up, we deliver we deliver the lesson. And I, I remember um a couple of years ago, um, we were going through a number of uh, challenges in our family, and my principal asked me if I was okay. And I said, Yeah, I'm fine, yeah, no worries. And then she asked me again the next day if I was okay, and I was, yep, yeah, fine, no problem. And, and then on the third day when she asked me, I just burst into tears. And you, you, you push down, you push down and you push down and you refuse, you don't want to admit that there's an issue. And that's why, like, and I, I'm not just saying this because it's a nice thing to say, like, I read your book from cover to cover and like burst into tears because I'm like, finally, somebody needs to, somebody needs to, to talk about this. And it's a profession that I love dearly and I wouldn't be doing anything else, but there are problems and we need to be having open, honest conversations. And, and I'm so grateful, like I said, that you'd take the time to, to pour your heart out into a book and also for your honesty today to talk about some of those tough times, because it's not until we have these conversations that we begin to realize that everyone is going through those challenges and we, mm. we, we can't even move forward until we agree that there's a problem. And so it's really, it's really, really powerful. And and, and I think you, you wrote in your work, it said that we need to actually ask ourselves some personal questions, things like what fulfills you? How do you continue to grow? What's your purpose? And how do you achieve this? And just taking the time to actually ask yourself those questions. I mean, can I maybe put that on you and ask, um, so in your current role, what is it that fulfills you and how do you continue to grow and what's your life like now that you've started to put in some of those things into place mm. yeah you're right it is it's the, it's the conversation we're not having that needs to happen it's how do we how do we get anywhere without being able to move beyond the headlines of teachers are stressed overwhelmed and burnt out well great we know that but let's actually start talking about what lies underneath yeah uh, and so when I think about how do I now feel fulfilled it's it's none of the big things I was doing before um it's actually just in the small moments of every day and it's conversations like this this is what fulfills me most and this is what I think we most need because where else are we doing this and this is a different conversation to having a whinge fest and I want to be really clear that they're not the same thing uh, because sometimes I think the perception is oh we're going to talk about well-being and so people are just going to whinge about how hard and horrible teaching is I love teaching you know, I didn't leave teaching because I was burnt out, because I was stressed, because I wanted to career change. I, I left because I somehow have found myself in this work. But if I had to go back, I, I wouldn't be sad about that because I, I genuinely love and am deeply passionate about education and being a teacher. And I think that's too why I, I get so much fulfillment out of this work, because if I can work with teachers and schools and help them to understand that when we talk about well-being, we're not talking about morning teas and hot chips, we're actually talking about are we functioning well and does the way we function support the work we do as educators and support our students, then there's a shift. Then there's an understanding that, oh, well, actually, this is about our culture. This is about the way we work. This is about how we run our planning meetings. This is about expectations on teacher workload. It's actually all of those things. And in order for us to be able to do that, we just have to have more conversations. And we have to remove the idea, and I used to say it, of course I'm tired, I'm a teacher. But we just have to be able to let that go and not and not think that that is the normal thing. Or, And I've heard it in staff, in staff rooms and in staff meeting conversations where someone says, oh, I'm tired, and someone says, yeah, I'm tired too. And then someone says, well, of course you are. If you're not tired, you're not doing your job good enough. And I, I know, and I, I was, 
I was having a conversation with somebody at the checkout yesterday and I said to them, how are you? And they said, I'm busy. I'm tired. And the person behind me said, I'm busy and tired too. And I was like, oh my gosh, like it's, it's, it, why, why do we like glorify that? Like, yeah. why is it like a badge of pride to say, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm exhausted. And I like, I feel guilty as well. Like if I'm not working, if I'm not on 24 hours a day, I feel like I'm not doing enough. Um, and it's really, it's really difficult and it's not sustainable. And I think sometimes like we, we have to realize that, that what we do while it's incredibly important um, is a job. Um, it's a profession. It's not our whole lives. And as you can see by my lovely daughter bursting in every 30 seconds to tell me something I don't really need to know um, life that's life out there. And the only reason why I can give what I can to my class is because the rest of me is doing okay, if that makes sense. And yeah. It's, we have to be able to have these conversations. And, and I, I loved what you said. I mean, there's so much in your, in your book and we, like I said, we don't have time to go through it all, but I'll, I'll put all the links and everything in our uh, show notes. But I love how you said that there's a number of mistakes that we've made. Um, the first one, we've waited for the system to rescue us. And another one is we've waited until we hit rock bottom because the system's not going to rescue us. Like it's going to get busier and busier and busier and we're going to get tighter and tighter and tighter and more burnt out. And so what what can we do instead of expecting some sort of external um, uh, rescuer, what can we do as teachers to try and make sure that we are prioritising the things that truly matter? I think it's... It's really about asking, what do my students need? That was that was the one big question I used to use every day when I was teaching, because there are so many other things. But if students are our core business and the and the center of schools in that aspect, then we just have to do what our, what we need to do for our students. That's that's the first thing we can be asking ourselves from a work perspective, because there are always going to be emails to reply to and other demands to take on and other extra priorities, but. If we can't give to our students, then we shouldn't be giving to everything else. That, that I think, is an, a conversation also we need to be talking about here. And then there are things we can do individually. And the first one is figure out what well-being looks like for you. Don't adopt the version you see on Instagram or the five things spill you post you find on Pinterest. Like, don't do that. Actually take a moment to sit down and say, what is well-being to me? How do I know when I feel like my well-being is really flourishing and thriving and what kind of person do I want to be and really get to know what it's like. I talk about well-being as being your equilibrium point, like your set point, feeling at home with yourself. What is that? And I can openly share that until my doctor wrote up those five things on that prescription pad, I didn't know. I didn't know what that was like. I couldn't have told you what well-being really looked like to me because I didn't know how to slow down enough to even acknowledge that it existed. Like I just wasn't aware. And I think there are many teachers out there who perhaps might relate or connect with that, the idea that you've always got to be fast, not even teachers, just people who the busy and tired people in the, in the supermarket checkout lines, like it's all of us. And we've adopted this approach of thinking that that's how life is and it's not. We were never designed to do that. Yeah. We've just somehow got caught up in it. My partner says to me now, he said to me on Saturday night, what are you doing tomorrow? And I just said, living my best life. And he said, but what does that involve? And I said, I don't know. I'll tell you tomorrow. Like the, I never would have been able to say that five years ago. I just, that would have freaked me out. I would have been like, we need a plan. We need a plan. I would have had a plan. But it's that ability to slow down and go with ease and learn to listen to yourself and know what that feels like. Like that's the first step. If you can afford to do that, for 10 minutes a day in the beginning and then extend it to an hour and then find a day in your week or a moment where you're like, I don't know, I'll just feel into it and see what happens. That's where you start to recognise that you're going to have things that you feel you need to do and want to do and that's what you should take on. Yeah. I mean, we'll talk a little bit in a moment about that sort of collective responsibility. I mean, we're kind of talking a little bit now about what we can do individually. I mean, do you have any sort of practical tips or, or, or tricks that you think we should uh, adopt as educators just to help create a bit more margin? I mean, turning your emails off. Or mm. What are some of the things which you think, which obviously it's an individual thing, but some of the things that you think we could probably do to help create a bit more of that space in our pretty busy lives? 
Yeah. I think first of all, email always comes up, but I would say decide when you want to work and when you don't want to work. We actually, as educators and teachers, have a we do have flexibility in our in our roles in that but in most schools, if you want to leave at 3.30 and the students are gone, you can. Great. And if you want to work late in the evening, you can. And if you want to stay late at school and not take work home, you can do that. So I would say decide when you want to work and allow that to be supportive of the life you want to live outside of school. So for me, I didn't want to take work home when I was teaching. That was one of the first things I put in place and I didn't have email on my phone. And so I would happily get into work at 7.30, 8 o'clock, but then leave at 4.35, knowing all of my jobs and tasks were done. But I was unreachable once I left that school ground. You couldn't contact me. Of course, my principal had my mobile number, should there be an emergency. And part of that comes with communicating to others. You know, this, this is how I'm working. This is how I'm operating. We need... If we need to tie this up, let's tie it up before the end of the workday. I'm not on. I'm not online until you know eight eight o'clock when I arrive the next morning. So part of it is know what your boundaries are in terms of how you want to work and when you want to work and what that looks like, and communicate it with others in your team. So a lot of work I do in schools is actually helping teams set these types of boundaries and ways of working up for individuals and then a collective because sometimes we don't talk or share about it and then we might get annoyed because someone didn't reply to the email at seven o'clock, but actually they're trying not to reply to emails at home because they're working on work-life balance. So we've got to be okay with having these conversations. And then the other thing I would say is sleep. Just learn to sleep well. Um, Lots of experts in in the field and psychologists I talk to, they say if you can get your teachers to do one thing, just get them to sleep um, seven to nine hours a night. And if you struggle to do that, get a sleep routine, get rid of your device an hour before bed, learn to slow your mind and body down. And the benefits that has on things like mood, ability to think, uh, decision-making, not feeling tired in the afternoon, um, being able to be more productive in the work that you do is immense. And so often lots of the issues we might perceive we have could be in some way benefited by a really good night's sleep, drinking more water, eating nutritious food. I know it sounds really simple, but yeah. And learning to slow down. It's those things. We just about don't coffee. Teachers love a good coffee. Yeah. And look, I love a good coffee too. And I I have one or two coffees a day and I'm not opposed to that. But I think if you are using coffee to get through the day, that's when it's problematic. I quite like the ritual of coffee. I have coffee in the morning, take my cat outside, write in my journal, do a few things. And I like that. But I don't need it to get through the day anymore. I mean, I used to go three o'clock in the uh, staff room, have a coffee, get home, still be like wired, but also too tight. Just you'll know when it's not working or when you're depending on it. And I would say then it's a problem. Yeah. And and it's a vicious cycle, isn't it? Because you... You drink more coffee, you sleep less, and then you have to drink more coffee, and then you yeah. and then so it's just this repetitive cycle. And I think, um, as I said, after reading your book, um, I, I I don't keep any devices near my bed, um, but I've got a little notepad, and I'm writing down all these yeah. things that I need to even talk to my team that I lead about. Um, and I think it's so important coming into this the beginning of the year and looking ahead and thinking, what are some of the things that we can implement that will protect our well-being and will actually help us be the best that we can for our students. I think it's it's so incredibly important. And Amy, I was just wondering if you wouldn't mind touching on what some of the things that we can do corporately as a school. I mean, there's an individual responsibility, but there's also some things that we can do corporately. You talked a little bit about emails and, mm. and messages, but is there anything else that we can do to really prioritise well-being? Yeah, I think at a school level, that's where we first of all have to understand and build a collective agreement that there is first of all individual personal and then professional and workplace well-being they're not the same so I mentioned sleep before like your principal is not going to come around and tell you to go to bed on time so we've just got to sort that out for ourselves so there are some things that we need to do individually and then the flip is we can't sit in a situation or a space of well well-being is only personal and it's and it's an individual's responsibility and at a school we have nothing to do with it that's not true either because the way we operate in a school or a workplace is impacting well-being, whether or not we're aware of it. And so I would say, first of all, have an agreed and shared understanding about what well-being is. So a bit I call it a well-being reset. Get everyone on the same page. And then you want to you want to do two things. You want to actually talk to your staff about what's helping 
their well-being in the way the school runs and you want to ask them what's getting in the way of it and you want to ask them if things could change what would that be and this is the difference I mentioned before about it becoming a whinge fest and it actually being proactive so this open honest conversation if I did a podcast episode recently on my own um, platform and I talked about if you can't if you can't communicate it then no one can help you and so it's all well and good to sit around with colleagues and say oh, well, my leaders don't care or, you know, if they really cared about us, they change this. But have you shared that with them? Like if we don't share, then no one can help us. And as leaders, if you don't seek out to understand what's going on and ask those questions, they might be challenging and confronting, I know. But if we don't seek out to find out more, then we don't know what to change. And so it's like throwing random things in the air and hoping they stick we just we don't know and that's a lot of what's happening in schools at the moment we're doing random things and hoping that they work but in actual fact it doesn't matter how amazing your morning tea spread is it's not going to influence the fact that your report writing schedule is really tight like we've got to look at what are the core issues that are impacting well-being and on that I would too say look at your system structures and processes do they support staff well-being do they allow staff to feel like they're working productively like they're engaged like their performance and growth is working well, like they're able to utilise their strengths or are they just continually rushed and go, go, go and the things that are happening in terms of system structures and processes aren't supportive of wellbeing. Yeah, and look, there's so much in that, Amy. And like I said, well, I'll, I'll link to all of your resources and ideas and all of that stuff And because I think there's, um, I don't want to gloss over everything because I think it's mm-hmm. It's really valuable for people to take their time to to work through your resources because they really are amazing. It, it made me think, I, I remember having a school leader once sitting in a number of meetings with her and she would say, I've just missed my daughter's grand final for soccer or I've just missed my kids' whatever. Or And I remember thinking, like, I'm not impressed with that. Yeah. and It doesn't impress me. Like, and I don't want to do that. And I think for so long I didn't want to move into a position of leadership because I thought, no. Nah, I don't want to be exhausted and miss the most important things in my life. I'm sorry. And it's only now that I have the incredible privilege of working in a wonderful school where that culture has been set. Um, And it's amazing how um, when you give yourself tasks tend to expand to the amount of time you have available. So if you give yourself a week to do something, you'll probably still do it last minute. And so I found like having a really tight, timeframes actually force me to get stuff done and setting up processes and procedures and flow charts um, are, are really essential. And I think as for the school leaders that are listening to this, you are the example to the people that you are leading. And if you're exhausted, if you're burnt out, if you hate your job, yes, there are other factors that are influencing that, but you also have a, a, a component to take responsibility for. Um, and I'm very aware of that, that people are actually looking at people in leadership positions to go, you look like death. I don't have a yeah. lot. It's yeah. probably why I never ventured into being a principal. I was like, I don't want to live that life. Well, yeah, yeah. But it, it's good to know, though, that it is that it is possible because there are a number of wonderful principals that there I've are. had the privilege of working with and school leaders and teachers that have understood and are implementing the principles that you talk about in your book. Um, so it is possible and I feel hopeful that we can begin to move towards a more sustainable approach to well-being in schools. And um, I do want to be respectful of your time. Um, just a couple more questions. Um, how do we sort of say no to really great opportunities? Because as teachers, there's always exciting things to do. There's professional learning goals. There's all of these things that we could be doing, all these shiny, new and exciting things. But how do we sort of take a step back and decide, okay, what should I be committing my time to? Yeah. Um, I would ask, does it align with my values right now? So be really clear and know what your values are personally and professionally because shiny thing syndrome is real. You're like, oh, I'll do this. Oh, I'll do that. Um, And you want to be able to say, well, actually at the moment, what I'm really working on professionally is building my ability to differentiate learning in my classroom and uh, support diverse learners. So I'm only looking for shiny things in those categories. And then personally, what I'm really working on at the moment is making sure that I can attend things that are important to my children and spend more time with family. And so I would be running every decision through those values and making sure that it aligns. And you just, you can't do everything. It's just part of the job. You can't. 
So, um, Amy, what does your life look like now? Because you've moved from uh, working um, at a school um, to obviously working for yourself. And is that 24-7? Do you still need to put in um, the things that you talk about in your book to make sure that you are still working within those parameters of your own well-being? Or have you kind of achieved all of that? Oh, I'm forever working. I mean, (laughs) and falling off and getting back on. (laughs) It's just part of how it is. And I think that's really important to highlight is that, I mean, yes, I wrote some wonderful things in my book, but I do I live and breathe them 24-7? I don't because I'm a real person and I'm a human and life gets in the way and old habits creep in or things just do get busy and it's part of it. And, I mean, today I've had a lovely day. You know, I did sleep in a little bit and I got to ride my bike to the gym and do a workout and walk by the ocean and do some social media and I did about two hours of intense work and have a leisurely lunch and now I'm chatting to you and I've got tasks this afternoon and that's that's a lovely ideal day for me but it's not an everyday there are days where my brain just won't cooperate and that's where I think oh it'd be so much easier if I was teaching because at least kids are entertaining (laughs) but it's it's hard to keep that momentum going but then also on Sunday I said to my partner I'm going to start having dinner earlier because I tend to work late in the evenings and I have a late dinner and I know I don't sleep well and you know sleep is everything it's 10 to 7 last night and I'm still working. I'm like, what am I doing? I said I wasn't going to do this. And so I don't yeah. I don't get it right all of the time. And I am continually having to pause and reflect and go, am I doing this as best I can right now? Is it just a transition period and something I'm okay with and can, can accept and have some self-compassion for? Or do I actually just need to parent myself here and sort it out? So it's just forever happening. So a little bit of a personal question. So what's a a habit or a process that you're currently trying to refine in your own life. Yeah, I'm back to I am back on not taking or not having my phone before bed. So I'm back to like not looking at it. Yeah. Um one thing that I let creep in and I suppose it happens over the break was being on my phone before bed and at some point in the holidays I started taking it into the bedroom I was like oh this has to stop so I'm back to putting it down at eight o'clock and not looking at it Seven thirty, eight o'clock it goes away that's the new thing I'm trying to bring back bring back <laughs> fantastic I I'm doing that as well I, I purchased a a physical alarm clock um, yeah, nice. and I'm trying to work out that the issue obviously is if it goes off in the morning it wakes my wife up which she's not very happy with and I'm an early riser and she is not so much and so we're we're trying to find that balance but as I said like reading your book um was it was incredibly powerful and also um it's encouraged me to go back through and read it again um because um it's about time somebody talked about these issues um and I love our profession too much to continue to um, ignore this problem. And so I'm in- incredibly grateful that you would be so open and transparent and write a book like this. And um, my hope is that there would be so many teachers around the world listening to this that go, yes, like it's about time somebody said that and I need to get a copy. Um, and so I, I am hugely, um, hugely grateful that you take the time and that you would interrupt your lunch to have a conversation with me. Um, I feel very grateful that you said yes. Uh, in in closing, where can people find out more about you and stay in touch with your amazing work? Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, my my business that I operate under is called The Wellness Strategy, so you can find that on Instagram, on Facebook, uh, and my website is also thewellnessstrategy.com.au, so you can find all of my information there. I'm always open to conversations, messages, emails, uh, just more of this. We need it. Amazing. And you do a range of programs in schools, I imagine, and you're happy to kind of tailor programs depending on individual school needs. Yeah, absolutely. As we talked about, wellbeing is not one size fits all and it's not the same for everyone. And I really believe that in schools. And so, yes, I have a suite of offerings and bespoke ways schools can work with me in terms of being able to prioritise wellbeing. But it is very much about First of all, knowing what the well-being health of your school looks like. How do you know what's going on with staff? Uh, it's not a stock standard set of programs, so I won't be sending you day one, two, and three because I don't know what they are for your school. <laughs> Amazing. And um, as I said, congratulations on, on such a, a, a powerful and meaningful book, and I'm hugely grateful that you talked to me today. And uh, you have an open invitation when you ever want to come back on and talk about some of your work, so please stay in touch. Oh, thank you so much. It's just been wonderful. Thanks, Matthew.
Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussions. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. And I've also created a private Facebook group where we continue the discussion there. The link will be in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and can't wait to see you for next week's episode.